Welcome to the Museum of Femininity, a podcast exploring themes, material, culture and stories that relate to the struggles and triumphs of women, both past and present. Welcome back to the Museum of Femininity. My name is Charlotte Appriard. Today I will be taking you back to the end of the 19th century and the turn of the 20th century in America, a time of tremendous growth and economic power as America exploded onto the world stage as a major cultural player. Here we see the emerging of the nouveau riche, men who have made millions of dollars in industry, business and the expansion of the railroads, and the rising prominence of families like the Astors, Rockefellers and Vanderbilts, fabulously wealthy American heiresses dazzled Europe with their style and charm, and in return, a slew of these ladies landed themselves aristocratic partners with land and titles. This ambitious burgeoning class marked the Gilded Age, an era of balls and parties, fashion and changing social attitudes to a woman's place, which is further exacerbated by the women's suffrage movement. During this time, we see the press becoming incredibly influential and more visual than ever, with advertisements and illustrations which often captivated these new audiences. One such image was that of the Gibson girl, who was a purely American invention and a complex one at that. In this episode, I will be exploring the history of the Gibson girl and what she can tell us about the place of women in this exciting and vibrant period in America. Gibson Girls refer to the popular feminine illustrations created by Charles Dana Gibson and widely published in national newspapers like Life magazine from 1886. The Gibson Girl is a familiar image of classic early 20th century American beauty and is often seen as being one of the earliest representations of idealised and specific beauty standards as conveyed in the popular press. Even if you have never heard the term Gibson girl, you are probably familiar with what she looks like. Picture a tall, elegant figure with a dramatic hourglass frame, achieved by wearing a swan bill corset. Her neck was always slender and long, and her facial features youthful, with large eyes and full, sultry lips, with a dainty ski-slope nose. Her hair is perhaps the most iconic takeaway from the Gibson girl look and is commonly brown soft curls piled up high on her head in either a bouffant pompadour or a waterfall of curls falling over her shoulder. There was also an attitude and demeanour commonly associated with this female archetype that went beyond mere beauty. I find the specificity of the Gibson girl astonishing and would be interested in seeing if this personification was really seen as being a realistic aspirational goal. Surely it was not possible for everyone to be a member of the upper middle class with enough wealth to always be immaculately dressed in the latest fashionable clothing, not just in the latest trends, but the appropriate outfit for the time of day and activity. For as well as being a statuesque beauty, she was also well versed in social etiquette. In terms of personality, as reflected in Gibson's lively illustrations, she is often depicted as calm, confident and independent, With an athletic streak, she is seen cycling through Central Park and exercising. Although this is the image of a much more liberated woman, as opposed to the passive, subservient wife, 
she was not commonly associated with the women's suffrage movement. Instead, she enjoyed the sexual freedom, equal education and disruption to the old patterns of social order without the overt political activity, remaining in the unblemished, desirable feminine role, to a certain extent reflecting the fact that she was created by a man. I find male reactions to the Gibson girls fascinating, particularly in the illustrations themselves. She is often sexually dominant and is conveyed as this unattainable goddess, floating elegantly as every man who crosses her path turns and drools in lust. Some examples of illustrations that depict men behaving in this way include Gibson girls examining men under a magnified glass or crushing them under her feet. These men are often flustered in her presence, even the conventionally handsome ones. There is one interesting drawing showing dumbstruck men eagerly following a Gibson girl's command to plant a tree upside down with its roots sticking up in the air, showing they would bend to any command no matter how ridiculous. So I think this highlights a really important fact about the Gibson girl, that she is perfect. She is so perfect that even the most level-headed man would do something ridiculous if she commands it of him. So it's this sort of superhuman power I think she has, which makes her feel so cartoonish and unrealistic, um, which is why I hesitate to compare any real-life women to her because she is pure fiction, pure fantasy. Um, but I will also cover some of the ladies who modelled for him. Um, so it's funny because I think almost her appearance is perhaps a bit more realistic than her attitude and her effect on men and her overall perfection because there were certainly women who looked like the Gibson girl, but that charisma, I don't know, it just it just seems completely unattainable. Um, just the full package, I don't think could ever exist. So it is interesting, it was clearly Charles Gibson's um, impression of how what a woman should be like. So I think to talk about Charles Dana Gibson um, a little bit, I'll just give you a sort of rundown of his biography because he was, of course, the illustrator and the inventor of the Gibson girl, which was this mass craze, this iconic image that was really everywhere and obviously um, became a fashion icon, someone people wanted to look like. So that's kind of interesting in, in itself, that a, a fictional character became almost the equivalent of a sort of trend-setting supermodel. So just to talk about uh, Charles Gibson. So he was born in 1867 in, in Roxbury, Massachusetts. He was one of five siblings and came from a well-to-do family with political connections. Gibson was a talented child and his artistic affinity was always encouraged, going on to study for two years at New York City Arts Student League. He sold his first drawing for Life magazine in the 1890s and that was really the sort of catalyst for his career. And in 1895 he married a lady called Irene Langhorn, um, who was the daughter of a railroad industrialist, Chiswell Langhorn. 
Um, and of course, she was clearly from that background, most associated with a Gibson girl. And she was very beautiful and she was indeed one of the models he based his uh, Gibson girl on. Um, I find Irene and her five sisters quite interesting um, and I would like to certainly know more about them. So they were all noted for their beauty and it's certainly no wonder they planted the seeds in Gibson's mind for his most popular creation. One of her sisters was actually Nancy Astor who was um, a Viscountess and she was also the first woman to serve as a member of parliament in the British House of Commons. So yeah, a, a very sort of interesting person who, um, you know, made great strides in women's equality. Charles and Irene um, had two children together, Irene Langhorne Gibson, and they also named their son Langhorne Gibson. So it was this weird merging of both of their surnames. So he briefly lived in an artist's colony as well, with actors and illustrators alike, and also became the editor of Life magazine later in his life. Um, and a huge part of his fortune and success, in fact, perhaps his entire reputation was down to the Gibson girl. So although her image was immortalised in print illustrations, she also appeared in other forms, uh, for example, plates and advertisements and fans and souvenir objects. So she was everywhere. The adverts would be for things like beauty products, so stuff aimed at women. But uh, she also became a common character in vaudeville plays, personifying this independent new American woman. And on YouTube, you can see some videos um, of these very early silent films where you, you see her sort of sauntering down the street and all the men are like crawling after her and sort of panting as she walks by and it's like the perfect visual moving image representation of those Gibson illustrations in Life magazine. So this takes American women out of the domestic sphere and also places them at the centre um, as important consumers who need to see themselves reflected back at them in products. Or in the case of the Gibson girl, an idealised version of beauty um, and an image for them to look up to and entice them towards that product. It was not only selling a look but a lifestyle, so a marketing ploy which has of course continued today and as we can see the Gibson girl was about much more than her looks. I mentioned this a little bit earlier um, about the Gibson girl being a fictional archetype um, but I would like to briefly touch upon some of the real life women who inspired the Gibson girl look because they're very interesting women and I think you know it's important to not associate them so closely with this idealised version of womanhood which no real woman could ever possibly live up to um, and that there's a lot more there's a lot more to them than their association with Charles Gibson in fact the very term Gibson girl is quite possessive and you know it sort of implies that these women belong to him they wouldn't exist without him they are Gibson girls Gibson's girls 
Um, so we should definitely not look at them in that way and try and see them as individuals in their own right, separating them from this fictional character. So the first uh, is Charles's wife, Irene Langhorn Gibson. So she was a native of Danville, Virginia. And although a famous beauty, she was also a remarkable lady who did many wonderful things for charity and her community. So, for example, she chaired the Child Planning and Adoption Committee of New York's State's Charities Association for 25 years. She also founded the New York branch of the Southern Women's Educational Alliance. She's a member of the Society for Prevention of Cruelty to Children and helped found and was a director of the Protestant Big Sisters, on whose board she served for many years. Although her legacy is very much linked to her inspiration for the Gibson girl, she was clearly so much more than that. So perhaps one of the most iconic models was Camille Clifford, who I will now talk about. So Camille was born um, in 1885. So this is, you know, a later Gibson girl, clearly, uh, based on the time. Uh, she was born in Antwerp in Belgium. And in the early 1900s, she won $2,000 in a magazine contest sponsored by Charles Stanley Gibson to find a living version of his Gibson girl drawing. You could not get closer to the image of the Gibson girl as approved by Gibson himself. So this was the catalyst for her career as she went on to become an actress performing in the United States from 1902 and in England from 1904. She returned from London to Boston on the 3rd of July in 1906 and funnily enough she only played walk-on non-speaking roles uh, but despite that became incredibly famous because she was insanely beautiful and she did fit with that idealised, astonishing, knockout beauty standard of the time, as some women do. There are many photographs of Camille which depict her astonishing S-shaped curved waist, which was always wrapped incredibly tightly in elegant falling gowns. Her waist was also corseted to a tiny 18 inches, emphasising her bust and her hips to great effect and creating that quintessential Gibson girl silhouette that in reality was clearly difficult to replicate naturally. She retired from the stage and married Captain the Honourable Henry Lindhurst Bruce in 1906. They have one child together who was called Margaret, but the child tragically died five days after birth. Her first husband also perished in 1914 during the Great War. Camille made a fleeting return to the stage after the death of her husband. Following then, in 1917, she married Captain John Murdiff Jones Evans. After the war, she left the stage for good and later owned a stable of successful racehorses. She died on the 28th of June 1971. So she had quite a sort of happy, stable life following... The, the tragic death of her first husband and child and also 1971 feels alarmingly recent when you consider the time period she found her success in and just as a random aside I think this highlights just how rapidly the world changed in the early to mid 20th century which completely boggles the mind you know when you think about 
1900 um, Victorian era, people still riding around in horse, horse and carriages. And then when you accelerate forward just a few decades, there's motor cars, you know, in the even like 60 years isn't that long and people are sort of flying to the moon and, you know, flying across the world in aeroplanes. It's, it's really amazing how fast we came in that time period. So yeah, yeah, just something to think about. Another famous Gibson girl is Evelyn Nesbitt, who has a fascinating story I will only quickly cover. So she was born Florence Evelyn Nesbitt on Christmas Day in 1884 or 1885. Uh, she was an American artist's model, chorus girl and an actress. So at an incredibly young age, we're talking her early teens, um, she started to model for newspapers and magazine advertisements. She even appeared on souvenir items and calendars, which quickly made her a celebrity. As well as posing for Gibson, she also modelled for James Carroll Beckwith and Frederick S. Church. In addition to her modelling, she also received worldwide attention when her husband, Henry Kendall Thor, a multimillionaire who was also suffering from mental instability, shot and killed architect and prominent socialite Stanford White in front of hundreds of witnesses at the rooftop theatre of Madison Square Gardens in 1906. Nesbitt appeared at the trial and testified that five years earlier, when she was a stage performer at the age of 15 and 16, she had been groomed by White, who sexually assaulted her numerous times. This rather sensational and tragic story is truly fascinating and has been covered in numerous podcasts, which I highly recommend. So the one that springs to mind is uh, The Art History Babes, which I really enjoyed. So if you want to hear a bit more detail about Evelyn Nesbitt's story, definitely have a look at that. What I would like to see now is sort of analyse the Gibson girl as a feminist archetype. So... Was she an empowering symbol of womanhood, of changing womanhood, of, you know, an emerging independence? Or was she promoting sort of dangerous, unattainable stereotypes and a certain obsession with beauty and looks? So I'd like to just for a moment look, look into that a bit deeper. So one of the arguments that implies the Gibson girl is an empowering image for women links to something called the dress reform, which is an important early indicator of the women's suffrage movement. The dress reform started in the mid-19th century and comprised of middle-class women who advocated for more sensible forms of garments that were comfortable and functional. Of course, this meant they rejected fashions of that time, like confining corsets and crinoline. These women were often ridiculed and, of course, their femininity was questioned, due to their rebellion against the status quo. Some major players in this movement were Elizabeth Caddy Stanton and Amelia Bloomer, who were the creators of the Bloomers, which they introduced in Seneca Falls in 1852. It was a failed attempt to radically change things at a quick pace and led to a decline in momentum, which was not reinvigorated until around 1895, which corresponds perfectly with the emergence of the Gibson girl image. Women were experiencing more social and economic opportunities. They could go to university, find employment, and were starting to enjoy an increase in physical activities and new kinds of leisure. Progress was in motion, 
and the, and the dress reform felt more relevant than ever as women wanted to shed their confining garments. Although we can still look at their image today and feel they, they look quite formal and rigid with their poker straight backs and long flowing gowns, particularly in contrast to the freeing and skimpier style of the flapper girl just a decade later, in comparison to fashions before the Gibson girl style, this was a huge step forward. So here we often see breezy white blouses and skirts combinations, which were in line with the dress reform goals and show a comfortable alternative that in reality was adopted by women of all classes as functional and stylish daywear. In addition, the Gibson girl is often depicted cycling, exercising, socialising with friends at the beach, working and of course engaging in flirtatious behaviour with men. These women are stylish, charismatic, intelligent and independent and personify a romantic version of the strong and captivating beautiful new American woman. So I think there's lots of positive traits the Gibson girl has that do for certain move her away from the sort of passive archetype of the Victorian lady which came just a few decades before and I do think that what she wore was generally a lot more comfortable however especially in the 1890s there was still the tendency to wear kind of a princess silhouette so very as I spoke about with Camille very tight um, difficult to walk in bustles so still there was this sense of creating a type of silhouette that not every woman would naturally have. So even though the clothing the Gibson girls wore, the silhouette they were promoting could only be achieved by wearing corsets. So there is this weird sort of irony in what I just read, but I think the spirit of the Gibson girl is quite modern and quite revolutionary in lots of ways, but it's quite complicated as these things are. So looking into why she is not a feminist figure um, and perhaps the argument against that idea, we, we cannot escape the fact that the Gibson girl, even when appearing in illustrations at balls or out and about with her fellow friends, was indistinguishable from the pack of other attractive illustrated ladies with this label and all of them appear like clones of one another, the same poised appearance and languid expression. There is nothing about the Gibson girl that signifies authentic individuality. She is a cartoonish outline of a perfect woman, with all the charm, intrigue and sex appeal of a male fantasy without the empowered desire for true, meaningful equality. Her godly glow is no better illustrated than in the image Another Moth, which was drawn in 1902, alluding to the bedazzled moth drifting towards a flame, as we see a beautiful woman emitting a dazzling light as a man dramatically falls to his knees in overwhelmed awe. In reality, there are only a handful of women who would have such an intense effect on a man. So why is it that this is the impossible standards women must hold themselves to? All she really is, is a male-created fantasy with a very subtle feminist slant, because if she went beyond mere cycling and into the realm of the suffragette stereotype, she would be stripped of all her sex appeal and would lose her title as the perfect female beauty. Because 
you know, in this era, suffragettes were often depicted as undesirable, unkissable um, spinsters, really. So I do think that if uh, the Gibson girl truly had those values, she would no longer be the perfect woman. But it was important that she was up to date, in the moment, stylish. And the, the new attitudes, the new sense of independence and freedom in America at that time um, was the modern sensibility. So she had to have those attitudes, but just without the politics and the extremism, I suppose, that was associated often with women's suffrage. So furthermore, now this is quite important, the Gibson girl is lily white and does not reflect the vast array of ethnicities which were present in the hugely diverse country of America. She was also exclusively upper class and had the social know-how to navigate luxurious settings, interact and dominate conversations with well-to-do gentlemen and the ability to receive an education which further limits the number of women who could sincerely see themselves in her image. The racial aspect also uncovers uncomfortable truths about Gibson's own attitudes towards race, which can be further assessed in his work. The new hat, drawn in 1906, for instance, depicts a line of women waiting to purchase a new hat. They are all varying sizes and ages, the woman in the front is a graceful Gibson girl and the woman at the back is a larger black lady who is slightly detached from the rest of the group, almost as an afterthought. As well as reflecting a strange Darwinian parallel, it also shows his unwillingness to make women of colour relevant in his work as their absence is all too felt in the majority of his output, reflecting a certain erasure. So it's that, it's that image of all, every single woman looking the same, being this beautiful Gibson girl, and you see no variety, no diversity at all. I'm going to read a quote now by Charles Dana Gibson talking about Gibson girls. They are beyond question the loveliest of all their sex in the United States, of course, where natural selection has been going on, as elsewhere and where much more than elsewhere, that has been a great variety to choose from. The eventual American woman will be even more beautiful than the woman of today. Her claims to that distinction will result from a fine combination of the best points of all those many races which have helped make our population." End quote. So this further highlights his belief in white superiority, the merging and integration of different races and cultures, and the eventual progress of the American woman towards perfection. These notions are problematic, and I feel ultimately, in spite of the Gibson girl's energy and aesthetic beauty, paints her as an unrealistic ideal and a damaging, impossible role model, which has developed and morphed over the decade into the image-obsessed media which has engulfed Western society today. I, f I feel... The Gibson girl um, and, you know, Gibson's attitudes towards different kinds of people is quite concerning and how he wants to establish this perfect American race uh, of white people 
that holds no resemblance to the, the varying cultures that make up Ameri American society in the 20th century shows, um, I don't know, a, a sort of narrow-mindedness. And I do feel the Gibson girl is a creation of Charles Gibson's imagination. But the real appeal of her was just the, the aesthetic appeal because the Gibson girl, if you look at illustrations of her, they are fantastic illustrations. They're incredibly light and detailed at the same time. They're, they're very sketchy but full of expressiveness and they're quite humorous as well. And I think, you know, the, the sort of floating qualities of the dresses and the hair and the, the subtlety of expression which is achieved in so few strokes of the pencil really highlights Gibson's talents as an illustrator and I feel the expressiveness and the energy of his work really caught on in people's imaginations because even though they're clearly caricatures and illustrations they feel quite real you know, he really succeeds in creating these absurd scenarios, which you can imagine actually happening. I'm just sort of thinking out loud here, but, you know, the expressions on the characters, it's its so well drawn. I'm not surprised people looked at these images and, and sort of it resonated with them in some way, or they, they thought, I want to be like her, because... There is such a self-possessing quality to the Gibson girl's look and obviously the effect she has on men around her. I think that was incredibly appealing and just her social status as well. I mean, this, as I sort of mentioned at the start, this was a time of social climbing and I do think she was this role model for some women but probably a very small percentage because it was impossible to be like her. For one thing, you had to be white and you had to be middle class and there were all of these sort of prerequisites to even being considered a Gibson girl. And I think any narrow assessment of beauty, any objective idea of beauty is really damaging. And, you know, I, I feel, even though I, I really love the Gibson Girl illustrations, I think from the point of view of a, of, of a modern day woman, I do see them as being quite triggering to this long line of beauty obsession we've had throughout the recent decades, this obsession with beauty. And I think that continued with the flapper, the flapper girl aesthetic during the 1920s which lots of people say was a great indicator of, like, liberation and feminism, but still, like, you know, the flapper used to cake her face in makeup, and and now we have this sort of cosmetics obsession, and lots of women wouldn't be caught dead walking outside their house without a face full of makeup. And it all kind of begins with trends like the Gibson girl. I'm sure there, there have been many existing since the dawn of time, We've had beauty standards, but, you know, I, I do think in the modern world it, it has sort of gotten slightly out of control and has perpetuated sort of unhealthy standards and difficulties with body image and, you know, everyone's perfect the way they are, really, and, you know, you should just accept yourself, basically. 
um, and not live up to these unattainable standards because a lot of the time they are created and established by men and what men find desirable, like with Charles Gibson. And we should ignore them. So, I hope you enjoyed that episode. It was quite interesting researching this topic. Um, So I'll just quickly discuss some of the sources. So one of them was the Virginia Encyclopedia. So the essay I found really useful was Troubled Abstraction, Whiteness in Charles Danner Gibson and George de Maurier by Jennifer A. Greenhill. I also used Vintage News, so there was a a 2018 article by Kate Below called The Gibson Girl, The Turn of the Century's Ideal Woman, Independent and Feminine. And then I also really enjoyed um, what I believe is a sort of university thesis called Faces of Feminism, The Gibson Girl and the Held Flapper in Early 20th Century Mass Culture by Raina Joy Jennifer Palso. So those are my sources and um, I yeah I hope you enjoyed this episode and I will be posting lots of images of all of the Gibson Girl models and illustrations I have quoted in today's episode on Instagram which you can follow at the Museum of Femininity and yeah please let me know what you think. Um, Part two of motherhood will be the next episode probably in a few weeks time with Harriet as well and I think we'll probably uh, talk more about contemporary art which is her expertise and something I don't know as much about. You've probably noticed that I tend to have an affinity with the 18th and 19th century but I'm eager to sort of broaden my horizons and discuss new topics which are a bit more contemporary and relevant to, to my time period. Okay, I hope you have a lovely day and thank you again, once again, for listening. Goodbye.